We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We declare to the world that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. We declare with boldness that the keys of the priesthood have been restored to man. We declare to the world that this is the day referred to by biblical prophets as the latter days. It is the final time before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. All right, section 135. Um, this one it says in the in the section heading announcement of the martyrdom of Joseph Smith, the prophet and his brother Hiram Smith, patriarch at Carthage, Illinois, June 27, 1844. This document was included at the end of the 1844 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, which was nearly ready for publication when Joseph and Hiram were murdered. There's I mean, the, this section is kind of like a, a eulogy slash battle cry, I think, for the saints. It's a way of saying, you know, here's why this had to happen but also we're not done we're not finished and I, I really think that that's the biggest most important part of this is that you had a group of people that um up until this point had relied on joseph smith and his revelations for pretty much everything and you know in the in the manual it says to imagine being a saint one of the saints in nauvoo and hearing about the martyrdom, like, how would you feel? What would your your impressions be? I just think your first thought would be, oh, my gosh, now what do we do? And then you'd be like, well, if this is true, if what I have done for the last however many years or months is the right thing, this won't be the end of it. Because if it had been just to follow a guy and he were the charismatic leader of a of a cult, you know, as soon as he died, it would be over. And I think that's what the mob wanted to do. That's what they wanted to accomplish. Well, it, it, it came out. It's over, right? It's, it also has worked in the past. Right. Almost every cult does not survive their leader, uh, either being incarcerated, killed, or committing suicide. <laughs> but, um, you know... That was the hope, is that, oh, this movement will die with Joseph Smith. But I think, like like this uh, eulogy or section kind of says, is, you know, in, in the 20 years, he brought forth the Book of Mormon. And, and one of the things that, for me, stuck out was when it says, yeah, verse 3, section, verse 3. A couple sentences down, it says, in a short space of 20 years, he brought forth the Book of Mormon, which he translated by the gift and the power of God, and has been the means of publishing it in two continents, has sent the fullness of the everlasting gospel, which it contained to the four quarters of the earth. For me, what what, uh, what was interesting is how it states that he brought the Book of Mormon by the power, by the gift and the power of God. He translated by the gift. Of, he didn't translate it by the gift and the power of the seer stone. He didn't translate it by the gift and the power of the hat. He didn't translate it by the gift of the power, you know, of the Yerman Thummim. He translated it by the gift and the power of God. And 
I like that because that was, you know, there there are many ways that people have described that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. Some of it was with the seersun and the hat. Some of it was with the interpreters or the Yermantonum. And I think ultimately those things were just tools. The real power was the gift and the power of God to translate these things. That's why, you know, we actually have the seer stone and there are pictures of it and the church has published it. And it just looks, it kind of looks a little different, but it's just a stone, you know. It, it isn't magical in it of itself, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's really important also to recognize that regardless of what method was used, the the, the source was always the same. That was a revelation from Heavenly Father. Um, it's interesting also to me that when they went to go to fulfill, it says uh, to deliver himself up to the pretended requirements of the law. Um, basically, when Hiram and Joseph left Nauvoo to go turn themselves in, um, they kind of knew that they were probably not going to make it out of that. You know, him saying, I'm going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer's morning. I have conscious void of offense to the Lord or to, towards God and towards all men. I shall die innocent, and it shall be said of me, he was murdered in cold blood. It, you know, we have to be careful, I think, a little bit about parallels we draw to Jesus Christ, because we don't elevate Joseph Smith to the same level as the Savior. Um, But kind of that idea of, I know this is an an inevitability. I'm going to go die, and I'm going to go die for this cause. Much like the Savior did when he was in Gethsemane, and he knew as soon as this is over, they're going to come and take me. And he went willingly to be crucified. And it does say later on in the section, and maybe, you know, people have kind of considered this to be a little bit of an arrogant statement, you know, that he's done, no one has done more for the salvation of man than Jesus Christ, than Joseph Smith, other than Jesus Christ. Um, People look at that and kind of say, well, why are you comparing him so much to Jesus Christ, right? But the fact of the matter is you look at what he was able to accomplish in those 24 years bringing all these revelations and Doctrine and Covenants, the translation of the Book of Mormon. Like, we're not saying that he himself is responsible for saving people in the sense, the same sense that Jesus Christ did. Without the atonement, the only person who could have done the atonement being Jesus Christ, because he was perfect, no one can be saved, right? We're, we cannot be redeemed from the fall. Um, Joseph Smith, I think what he what he contributed was a ways to obtain a testimony of that atonement, a means to another means um, to understand how the Lord influences our ability to return to our Heavenly Father. There's so many things in the revelations and Doctrine and Covenants and in the doctrine that we find in the Book of Mormon that clarifies and helps us really solidify our understanding of the atonement itself. So I don't really see it as like, us comparing him or, or elevating him to the same status as Jesus Christ. I see it as we're saying, Jesus Christ did all of this. He's the only one that could have done all this. And because of him, we're saved. Joseph Smith gave us more tools to gain a testimony of Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah I think for me, the testimony that I don't know Joseph Smith, never met him. I've read a lot about him. The the way that I know that he's a true prophet is because I know that the Book of Mormon is true, you know, right. and that was the fruit of the restoration is the Book of Mormon. 
and what it is is another testament of Jesus Christ. And like you said, Joseph Smith brought the Book of Mormon to light, was instrumental in its translation and its safekeeping, and it wasn't easy. <laughs> um, you know, I would encourage everybody to read Saints Volume 1, at least the first few chapters, and it gives you a pretty good idea of Joseph Smith's character in a different way and and, and the struggles he went through. Um, and the fact that even from the beginning, he was not perfect. He was always corrected. And the Lord and Angel Moroni would continuously just like, hey, I told you to do this. Please, <laughs> please be obedient. And um, one of the things that stuck out to me in this section was kind of like you mentioned how when he's going to go be arrested or give himself up because he knows he's a wanted man. And so he doesn't get arrested. He actually just goes and turns himself in to avoid possible. Uh, he does it so they don't that the mobs don't get riled up and then do harm to the saints at Nauru, right. um, which is a very noble thing. If he was a selfish leader, I mean, he could have you know, left. Um, and I think that was part of it. He he was him. He was leaving to go west. But then when he heard how bad it would have been for the saints and what kind of pressure they were putting on them, he decided to turn around and go give himself up. And most of the saints were encouraging him to go. Hey, go. They were trying to get you. Go away we'll, and, and, and hide. Um, but but there came a moment when he said, now I think it's time to face this and, and, and see what happens, right? Um, so what stuck out to me is like, Early, early on, Joseph Smith, we know in Joseph Smith history and in Saints Volume 1, that he was very concerned for the welfare of his soul. And in Saints Volume 1, where am I? Um, page 11, page 12. Um, the second paragraph starts, as he worked the land, young Joseph continued to worry about his sins and the welfare of his soul. The religious revival in Palmyra had quieted down, but preachers continued to compete for converts there and throughout the region. Day and night, Joseph watched the sun, the moon, and the stars roll through the heavens in order and majesty and admired the beauty of the earth teeming with life. He also looked at the people around him and marveled at their strength and intelligence. Everything seemed to testify that God existed and that and had created humankind in his own image. But how could Joseph reach him? And so this gives us a little insight in kind of his thought process, you know. He was very observant. He was observing the, the revival. He was observing just nature, how people are and how they have feelings and are intelligent. And early on, he was worried for the welfare of his soul. Like, hey, am I sinning? Like, what? how can I be saved? Uh, you know, what, what will happen? And, and when he says now in Doctrine Come to Section 35, where he says, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer morning. I have a conscious void of offense towards God and towards all men. You know, there's a big growth that has happened from the young boy looking at the stars, wondering about his, his the welfare of his soul. And now being in a very contentious upheaval time, knowing that, everything is fine, you know, at least the welfare of his soul is fine. There are things bad are going to happen. <laughs> he's probably going to get killed and continue to be persecuted. And this isn't the first time he's been arrested, and nor is it the first time he 
just face the mob being tarred and feathered and beat up you know like it's you know the the consistency by which he does not recant the first vision by he stands by the book of mormon um absolutely he wasn't perfect you know absolutely he has flaws and made mistakes but i think you know what for me the most important thing is the fact that he sealed his testimony meaning with his blood meaning he could have recanted there were a lot of times there were easy ways this wasn't the only time that it was presented to him hey if you just do this or even the temptation to just be like other preachers Right. Do, do it for money do it for gain uh play by the rules and everybody else will accept you but no what you're saying becomes controversial when you're saying things like hey you know all this money and filthy lucre and you don't really know the actual identity of what jesus christ is saying or what who he is and you know in a way it's very similar to um the how threatening christ became to the pharisees you know because he totally challenged every social norm that they believed in, you know, and it threatened their power and status. And I feel like that's why these mobs acted in the way they did, because the saints threatened their social and economical status and their religious beliefs. And that's one of the hardest things. And so if for me to say, how does this apply to us in our day? Well, we live in a very in the same type of scenario where People's identities are so wrapped up around these social economic structures, either political party, either food <laughs> preference, either, you know, exercise regime, either, you know, belief in natural medicine as opposed to medicinal, artificial medicine. I don't know. You know, everything is so wrapped up into anything where an opposing idea or an idea that's different becomes threatening and all of a sudden we have our own pitchforks and mobs but we do it differently you know i i think the other part of this is um there may have been i mean this was not something unexpected but at the same time i don't think he was planning on being martyred i don't think he was expecting you know that this would be necessarily the end of things um they had been persecuted for a long time in Nauvoo they had kind of a stronger foothold than they had in the previous places but there was still some animosity towards them um and they had planned they had already begun discussions to leave Nauvoo and to go westward and you know kind of acquired some maps of the west and kind of started discussing well where would be a good place to go and all this and there was there was a lot of discussion about that happening and I'm sure that Joseph Smith um being part of those discussions and that planning maybe intended to go you know and like you said there were some motions to start heading that way and people even saying well we've got this kind of plan organized why don't you just get out of dodge you know you don't have to go and, and turn yourself in we can just leave um but it kind of speaks to his integrity um that he would say no i'm not just going to go bail on everyone and run away we're not ready yet and they're they're only going to bring more consternation to us as a people so i'm i'm going to go and, and fulfill this warrant essentially and go turn myself in i think that we we kind of look at that and say well he must have known or he must have 
why would you make all these plans to go west if you weren't even going to be involved? Or did he? Why didn't he tell some somebody, hey, I might not be with you, or something like that? And you know, I don't think that necessarily all of this was known. I think it was just kind of like that morning when they left, when they went to Carthage. I think it was kind of the feeling that I may not come out of this, and I'm leaving it in good hands. We have people who can still be leaders for the for the church and can take them westward. It's just kind of an interesting thing to be, you know, when you think about yourself as being one of those saints in Nauvoo, I'm sure that there were some people that were like, wait, what? All of this that we've done, all of these sacrifices we've made for him to be killed at the hands of a mob? There were probably some people even that doubted the legitimacy of the whole thing at that point. They started to say, well, wait a second. If he's the prophet, why would the Lord let him die? You know? and a lot of doubts could have come up, but I think the, the cool thing is that you see Brigham Young step into that mantle. And you see him as kind of taking on the next era of what the church will be and saying, OK, we need to move out of Nauvoo. We need to go westward. And I mean, I think it's within like six months, right, that they start actually uh, heading west. And everyone kind of getting organized to do that. I mean, that's a pretty fast turnaround for the thousands of people and the infrastructure they'd established in Nauvoo. Um, for, for him to take that mantle of leadership and be like, okay, I, I guess it's my my duty now to do this. Uh, it just kind of speaks to the fact that the Lord doesn't do things on a whim and it doesn't leave things up to chance. We still have our agency. Those men that uh, that shot Joseph Smith, they still could have decided not to do that. They use their agency to to attack and, and martyr him in Hiram, but it wasn't that that didn't stop anything. Like the Lord still was able to say, "Okay, next steps, next leader, next steps," and we've been able to see that transpire throughout history as well. Every time that a prophet has passed away, luckily we have not had any more need for you know them to be martyred or anything. And um, but when they pass away, there's no there's no break in the momentum of the church. It's here's the next one. That's not to say that everything went perfectly smoothly. <clears throat> when Brigham Young became the prophet, we know that there were some that thought it should have been passed down from father to son, um, that Joseph Smith's son should have inherited that responsibility or family member. Um, but we see, you know, there's a precedent now that when a, when a prophet dies, we know what to do about it, and, and we, the church continues on. Well, just we know that Joseph passed the keys to the Quorum of the Twelfth in the First Presidency. And as far as the organizational part of the priesthood, you know, there, there is several uh, sources, you know, that talk about him passing the keys among the quorum and, and things like that because that was one of the big things about the restoration of the gospel was one of the things that didn't sit well with people was where's the priesthood and was it supposed to be passed by the laying on of hands mm -hmm. and so you know that's a key fundamental thing um and so i go back to saints volume one because it's so good and it just explains you know and that's kind of where we're at we're kind of these aren't, um, you know, 
these aren't like scripture chapters like we're used to where the Lord is speaking. These are more like uh, historical events with scriptures in them, right? right. Um, so it says, um, this is uh, on, it's it's called, uh, it's chapter 45, An Almighty Foundation in Saints Volume 1, in page 559. Um, so this is when Brigham Young uh, heard about uh, he got a letter from uh, Brigham Young and Orson Pratt, heard the rumors that Joseph and Hiram had been killed, but no one could confirm the story. Then on July 16th, also, that's probably really hard because, you know, when we imagine ourselves as the saints in those times, you probably heard parts of what happened, rumors, and and it probably took a while to piece everything together and finally know what happened, which would be fairly frustrating i mean we we're very blessed with technology nowadays where you know we don't have to we know things pretty quickly but it says um uh received a letter from nabu detailing the tragic details when he read the letter brigham felt like his head was going to crack he had never felt such despair it's his thoughts turned instantly to the priesthood Joseph had held all the keys necessary to endow the saints and to seal them together for eternity. Without those keys, the work of the Lord could not move forward. For a moment, Brigham feared that Joseph had taken them to the grave. Then a burst of revelation. Brigham remembered how Joseph had bestowed the keys of, on the twelve apostles. Bringing his hands down hard on his knees, he said, The keys of the kingdom are right here with the church. Brigham and Orson traveled to Boston to meet with other apostles in the eastern states. They decided to return home immediately and advise all missionaries who had families in Abu to return as well. Um, Brigham told the saints in the area, be of good cheer. When God sends a man to do a work, all the devils in hell cannot kill him until he gets he gets through. He testified that Joseph had given the twelve all the keys of the priesthood before his death, leaving the saints everything they needed to carry on. After after his martyrdom and after um, things were kind of transferred uh, to to Brigham Young, and once again, I'm not getting into all the details there because it was not completely a fluid thing. Uh, there were, I think, a lot of debates on who should be uh, the next prophet and stuff. But it was interesting because they had to. They essentially had to leave Nauvoo for too long. They were receiving far too much persecution after the death of the prophet. And that's kind of where we get uh, some of the information in section 136. Um, and it's talking about, they, they left Nauvoo, they crossed, uh, walked across, across Iowa, um, which was very difficult for them to do. And they stayed in winter quarters, which is in Nebraska. And if anyone's ever been in the Midwest in the winter, it's not only cold, but it's incredibly windy. And there's a certain amount of humidity that is in, is we don't experience in the West as much. And it can be, I mean, in the very below zeros, it can be 25 below sometimes. Um, and now we have the modern conveniences to keep us warm. Back then they kind of had to grow together whatever they could to house themselves in winter quarters for a while because they, we're trying to figure out what are we doing? How are we going to organize this? Where are we going? 
um, it was kind of like, all right, we had to get out, but we don't really know what the next step is. And it's interesting that in this time uh, of a lot of unknown stuff, they get this section, the will and the word and will of the Lord concerning the camp of Israel and their journeys in the West. And it's, it's really cool how the Lord basically says, all right, now that we're down to the next step, here's the business, you know, here's how you're going to organize yourselves. Here's what you're going to do. We're going to have captains of fifth, captains of hundreds, captains of fifties, captains of tens. Um, in verse four, it says, and this shall be our covenant that we will walk in all the ordinances of the Lord. And one of the things that they did was uh, prior to leaving Nauvoo, they tried to get as many people, uh, their temple ordinances as possible. Um, it was a flurry of, of trying to get people endowed and trying to get people married and sealed and all of that because they knew we're leaving our temple. We don't know when we're going to have a temple again. We don't know when we're going to be able to do this stuff again. So it was, let's do as much as possible before we have to leave. And it was incredibly useful because it turned from this horrible experience of crossing Iowa. Once they got to winter quarters and got this revelation, they were kind of started to realize, okay, this isn't just we're running away. This is, we're now on a covenant path to something bigger, to something else. Um, it says, uh, this is in the Revelations in Context book. It says, in January, by January 1847, it's talking about Brigham Young, he'd lost so much weight that his clothes no longer fit. He'd worried about the saints, counseled about what to do, and prayed for divine guidance. And then on January 14, 1847, the answer came. Two days later, Brigham Young invited the saints to accept the word and will of the Lord. Since the revelation begins by addressing the camp of Israel and their journeys to the West, some have assumed that the revelation is a simple how-to guide for organizing pioneer companies and have underestimated the role it played in refocusing Brigham Young in the church by helping the saints remember that their conduct on the journey was important, was as important as their destination. The revelation helped transform the westward migration from an unfortunate necessity into an important shared spiritual experience. It's interesting because they use some of the, the same organization from Zion's camp. And I think that maybe some of the people who were present in Zion's camp were like, oh, no, are we doing this again? You know, <laughs> um, like, where are we headed with this? Because last time we set off, it didn't turn out so great. And also, you know, the, the unfortunate necessity of having to leave the city that they put so much time, energy and, and faith into building in Nauvoo. It was not an easy thing to do. And then to end up in winter quarters, which was not a hospitable place, was like, we left that for this? What are we doing? You know? And then getting this revelation, I think, was like, all right, this is not just uh, a trial that we have to endure until it's over. Like, this is something that we are going to build upon in the future. And it goes on and says, during Zion's camp in 1834, Joseph Smith had used an organizational model of a presidency of three with captains of hundreds, fifties, and tens. Brigham Young had attempted to implement this pattern before the Saints left Nauvoo, but it was not given a high priority. Now in 1847, the way that the Saints were organized would become so important that even before Brigham Young finished writing down the revelation, he proposed that letters be written to instruct brethren on how to organize companies for immigration. There was a, a certain urgency to this that was new. It was different. It wasn't just let's let's run away until we can find a safe place and settle again. It was this is going to be a bigger thing than we've ever done before. 
and quite frankly, it says um, in another part in here that it was because of all of this organization, it was the most carefully orchestrated, deliberately planned and abundantly organized Hegira in all of American history. Um, the idea that they were going to be moving thousands of people across thousands of miles into who knows where that had never been done before in American history in that organized way. And then the last part I want to share out of this is um, talking about walking the covenant path and it says with new understanding came renewed energy as God's people. They had the privilege and responsibility to undertake the, the journey differently. Lack of physical preparation and food had been major issues during the saints journey journey across Iowa. Now Brigham came to believe that the success of their endeavor depended less on manpower, maps, wagons, and supplies, and more on heeding the word and will of the Lord. The Lord could cause it to rain manna on the plains of America if need be, so long as the saints put their trust in him. The saints had no need to overload the wagons out of fear. To reinforce this point, Brigham Young reduced the Vanguard Company to just 144 men and instructed them to bring just 100 pounds of food per person on their journey into the wilderness. All who would not, who had not faith to start with that amount could stay in winter quarters, he declared. He warned all who intended to proceed to the mountains that inquiry, that iniquity would not be tolerated in the camp of Israel, and further declared, I did not want any to join my company unless they would obey the word and will of the Lord, live in honesty, and assist to build up the kingdom of God. I mean, this is a kind of a different approach than what Joseph Smith had. Um, it seems like it was kind of like, hey, just everyone come to Nauvoo, everyone come to Kirtland, everyone come to, you know, and we'll all work together and we'll all participate and we'll all lift where we stand and stuff. And Brigham Young's like, <laughs> listen, if you're not going to follow the rules, you can stay here, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it probably rubbed people a little bit the wrong way because they're probably like, first of all, are you even really the prophet? And then second of all, uh, where are we going? What are we doing? And now you're just kind of establishing yourself and all these rules. But it had to happen this way because honestly, to treat this as just a big long walk in the forest, a big long walk across the plains, was not going to work. You had to treat it as something bigger. Yeah. Bigger you know? Yeah. Like this, the, these trips. There's no, um, you know, nationwide is on your side or or or. <laughs> You know, there's no one coming to rescue you, you know, and and also I think it, it was a refining moment for individuals. And that's what made it a spiritual experience. It's because of the sacrifice and the fact that we are going just as much as by supplies as as much by faith as well. You know, there, there's two types of need. Um, I thought it was interesting when you mentioned that Brigham Young had wanted to do this before. Mm. Um, that he wanted to have this organization structure, but he wasn't in charge, you know, and and that's that's an interesting thing because that's that's the reality, you know. There are many times when you may have an idea, but it's not the right time, you know, and that doesn't make it that you're wrong. It just makes it that it's not the right time. And I see that very much with with our prophets, our Latter Day prophets, you know, President um, Hinckley had certain things he did, and President Monson had certain things and President Nelson and they were all together and they're probably all kind of receiving revelation and, and waiting for the right time to do things, you know. Yeah, and it's interesting because maybe had he forced the issue back then, it wouldn't have been well received and maybe it wouldn't have been 
a, a fruitful endeavor. But the fact that he was able to do it at the right time and under the right authority, um, it you know, it says the 1847 immigration stands in dramatic contrast to the previous year. While the Vanguard Company had traveled less than 300 miles in 1846, an average of little more than two miles a day, the first Pioneer Company traveled more than a thousand miles in 111 days, averaging more than four times the distance per day of the previous year. So it's like it was effective. It may have not been what was needed or absolutely necessary to cross Iowa, but in order to accomplish what they needed to accomplish in the bigger picture, these types of organizations, this unflinching dedication to the will and to the word and will of the Lord. I mean, he he said. Um, it says in late May, he read the will, word and will of the Lord to the company and expressed his views and feelings that they were forgetting their mission. He further proclaimed that he would rather travel with 10 righteous men who would keep the commandments of God than the whole camp while in a careless manner and forgetting God. The following day, he declared he wanted the company to covenant to turn to the Lord with all their hearts. He reminded them to act like covenant people. I have said many things to the brethren about the strictness of their walk and conduct when we left the Gentiles. If we don't repent and quit our wickedness, we will have more hindrances than we have had and worse storms to encounter. Having reproved with sharpness, he then very tenderly blessed the brethren and prayed that God would enable them to fulfill their covenants. He's basically kind of, it's a paradigm shift. It's a, we're not just going to, you know, maybe the first phase was accepting the gospel and going to build your utopia, right? Let's go build our city, our beautiful city, Nauvoo. Let's, let's build our everything that we want it to be. Uh, and that all fell apart pretty quickly uh, because of persecution. And so it was, all right, now we're going to go and we're really going to set, set a foundation. Um, we're going to go somewhere where we can actually establish ourselves permanently somewhere. Um, and in order to do that, it wasn't just, okay, well, everyone kind of just do what's what's best for them and think about others and contribute. You know, consecrate your things to the Lord. It's every waking moment you need to be thinking about why you're doing this. Every waking moment, every step you take, you need to be dedicated to the cause. And that was kind of a lot to ask. It was a lot to ask. And I think maybe some people uh, at first weren't up for that or didn't understand, like, what what kind of dedication this is going to take to be successful. And so he kind of had to, you know, tell them, listen, if y'all don't get your act together, we're going to suffer really bad out here we really need to do what i've said we really need to follow that word and will of the lord for us to be able to succeed and for us to not just suffer the whole way and those that did that those that changed and, and embraced that idea um while it wasn't you know completely flawless i mean good heavens we know that crossing the plains was very burdensome very difficult filled with trials but it's easier to bear those trials when you know why you're doing it and applying that to us today, I think, you know, we're not being asked to walk across the plains. We're not being asked to do a mass exodus anywhere. But every single day we're being asked to remember our covenants and remember why we do things. When trials come up to not flinch, trials come up to remember this is why we're doing this. We are a covenant people and we're on that path still in a different way. Yeah. I agree. I think I think it's important to remember that. You know, the Lord has a peculiar people and the stumbling block of Israel back in the day was always wanting to be like everyone else around them. 
and not accepting the fact that, hey, we do things differently. In contrast, there's many belief systems, religions that can be popular because they tell you what you want to hear. Um, and I just look at Jesus Christ and I think he doesn't tell us what we want to hear. He tells us what we need to hear. And that's different for everybody. And if we accept that, comparison will hold us back. If 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 we always compare and say, well, so-and-so has this life and so-and-so can do this, so-and-so does that. Why can't I, you know, you know, we, we all want a personalized experience, but we don't want to live that way. Sometimes I feel. Let us be awake and not be wary of well-doing. For we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.